Tonight we are uh, beginning a new series. So when I do that, I can no longer. Uh, a new series that will uh, take us through a good part of the spring um, on the uh, minor prophets. And they are minor not because they're underage um, or because they're of lesser importance uh, than the major prophets, uh, but because they're shorter. Uh, these are books of the Old Testament, um, shorter in length than the, the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Um, Chris Saladay, I remember, refers to them as the verbally efficient prophets. <laughs> so, uh, and, and we do hope that as we uh, make our way through these uh, this spring. I hope you'll take the time to read them because we're we're going to be doing one each Friday night and we really don't have time to uh, go into a great deal of depth. But we're calling this series Understanding the Heart of God because the prophets speak for God and uh, when they speak they reveal to us what God uh, cares about deeply. And the writing prophets, I mean, there are some prophets who we don't have books written by them, like Elijah, but the writing prophets fit into the, the big sweep of, of biblical history that comes after God delivers his people uh, out of their bondage in Egypt uh, under the uh, stewardship of Moses, and then he imparts to them a law, a rule of life for them as his covenant people, and then uh, as Moses passes from the scene, Joshua is raised up to bring them into the land. You remember that God promised to Abraham and his descendants. And then in that land, uh, God establishes kings over the people in a, uh, a united kingdom under Saul and David and then Solomon after which the kingdom divides into, into north and south. And so you have the, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And it is, uh, there you see it here on this map, and, and this also indicates, you can see uh, the names of uh, the different prophets. And the one that we're going to be looking at um, is uh, uh, Amos, who is down here in uh, Judah, uh, which is interesting because he's the furthest south in terms of where he's from, but he's going to be directing his message primarily uh, to the northern kingdom. And when the prophets speak, you know, often we talk, we think about prophecy, we think about prophesying the future, and they do certainly speak of coming events, but they're also uh, deeply focused on the current situation uh, among the people of God. And indeed, God raises up these prophets to call his people uh, to repentance. Um, not unlike, if you think in the New Testament, of John the Baptist who came preaching a message of repentance. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. And uh, so the, the prophet Amos, uh, as I said, he's called by God to speak to the, to the kingdom in the north. Um, and often the prophetic messages, and we're going to see this over and over again, um, are pretty hard-hitting because God calls these servants to call his people out of their sin, out of their unbelief, um, and uh, to repentance. So what we're going to do with Amos tonight, uh, we're going to look at the situation that he's addressing, 
uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the heart of God as we see it in uh, the message that he gives to Amos and then suggest a couple ways for us to, to think about this and respond. Uh, so what's the situation? This is probably sometime around uh, 750 BC. God sends a, a, a rancher and a farmer who lived in the small town of uh, Tekoa, I don't know how to pronounce that, about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. He sends him north uh, to Israel to speak. And why, why, why does he send him up there? Well, by way of historical context, for Israel, the kingdom in the north, uh, this is a, th these are good times. Uh, this is a time of stable government, uh, limited uh, intervention from uh, foreign enemies, particularly from, from the uh, north. Um, the, uh, and as a result, both Israel and Judah are experiencing a time of wealth, uh, prosperity, uh, some would say unparalleled since the time of uh, King Solomon. Uh, so it's good times. So why does God need to send Amos to speak to them? Um, well, if you read the book, you'll come away with a pretty clear idea of what was going on. And as I said, I do urge you to, to do that. On the one hand, yes, uh, for some it was a time of extraordinary prosperity. Um, and in fact, this is part of, of the, the problem. The wealth and the prosperity that some of the people were experiencing is leading uh, to the development of an, uh, of an affluent and leisured uh, upper class uh, in the community who have adopted what really is a decadent lifestyle of uh, excess and uh, uh, what we might call consumption, uh, conspicuous consumption. Um, Amos gives us a, a kind of a, a vivid description of their, their wasteful, their luxurious lifestyles, owning multiple homes, lavishly decorated with opulent furnishings, feasting on the finest of foods, spending their time in idle amusement and, and entertainment. So we'll just see a couple of texts uh, out of Amos. Um, this coming from chapter 6, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph, of uh, the nation of Israel, of God's people. And then um, this earlier in the book from uh, chapter 3, notice, I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come uh, to an end, declares the Lord. And you, you might say, well, okay, what is, is Amos saying? Well, it's a sin to be rich? Is, is that the point of the book? Um, and uh, certainly the, the, the biblical answer to that, I, I think we have to recognize, is complex. Let's not just slap a simplistic answer on that. But it's not their wealth per se that is the problem here. 
the fact, uh, the, the, the situation that uh, is grieving God has two aspects to it. We're going to look at both of those. So even though it's, it's good times materially for some, for others, it is a time uh, in, in which they are experiencing uh, hardship and uh, hardship because of injustice. At the same time that some are living this, this good life that we've just described, Amos is also observing how the rich and the powerful are ruthlessly exploiting the poor and the defenseless. And the poor are being taken advantage of by things like dishonest merchants who are using dishonest scales to cheat people, uh, wealthy landlords who are charging high rents for the use of their land. Uh, there's corruption, there's bribery, uh, there's, there's a, a kind of a rampant materialism. There's, there's this luxury and this, this sort of wanton uh, indulgence in pleasure for those who can afford it. But the poor of society are ignored and, and abused, and, and people are turning a blind eye to this injustice and to the growing uh, disparity between those who enjoy great wealth and power and privilege and those who suffer in poverty and, and, and uh, oppression. And so um, when, when Amos begins to announce the word of the Lord, uh, the sins of Israel, He's already called to account some of the surrounding nations, but when he calls Israel to account, he calls them to account for their failure to keep the law of God. And uh, this is just a sample here in chapter 2. For three transgressions, for four, I will not revoke the punishment. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for, for a pair of sandals. They trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. They turn aside the way of the afflicted. Or in, in chapter 4, this striking image, the cows of, of, of Bashan, he uses that term to describe the, the wealthy women uh, of the time. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. And so you see this kind of disregard, this, this indulgence in their own wealth and their own comfort, their own pleasure, and the disregard. Hear this, chapter 8, verse 4, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over? The prescribed, uh, this like the prescribed uh, time that we may sell grain. It's like, when can we get back to making more money? And uh, of, of the Sabbath, when, when will the Sabbath be over so that we can offer our wheat for sale and that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. So... Yeah, it's a time of prosperity for some, but not for, for everyone. It's a time of suffering uh, for others, and the wealthy and the powerful are disregarding not just compassion or having none in their heart, but they're disregarding the law of God. They're disregarding justice. They're lacking compassion for the poor and the afflicted. They love their work. They love making money. 
and they seem to resent God's interruptions, his intrusions of their commerce. This sounds familiar, perhaps. And so that's a bit of the situation, uh, simplified and summed up briefly. But let's, let's think a little bit about God's heart as we see it here. Uh, I mean, one of the things that emerges is that God cares about justice. And uh, this is something that we'll talk about some more over the course of the semester. And, uh, because I mean, we're living in a, in a cultural moment when uh, everybody is talking about justice. And uh, it's important for us as Christians in the first place to, to recognize and understand God cares about justice. It is rooted in his character. Um, we might observe that in, in God's, the, the justice of God is, is both retributive, calling wrongdoers to account, right? But God's justice is also restorative. And in the, the latter sense, uh, as, as one uh, Christian theologian puts it, in the latter sense, God's justice is a manifestation of his grace because he cares for those who are suffering injustice. Uh, the Hebrew term uh, occurs over two, uh, 200 times in the Old Testament, and in its most basic sense, it's talking about treating others equitably or fairly or giving people what is their due. And over and over again, uh, the term is used in relation to the, to the most vulnerable members of society or of a community. Uh, namely those who are, are widows, those who are orphans, those who are uh, immigrants, those who are poor, because these are the ones, they're the most vulnerable, they have the least, uh, what we might call social power, they have the least material resources, and therefore they are, they are most likely to be neglected or exploited or mistreated or oppressed. And uh, scripture tells us that the God that we believe in cares for these vulnerable ones. He calls himself, Psalm 68, a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. Some of you know uh, Tim Keller. He writes, this is one of the main things God does in the world. He takes up their cause. He doesn't identify himself with the elites of society, with the wealthy, with the powerful, but with the outcasts, with the poor, with the powerless. And we don't want to mistake that when, for example, the Apostle Paul talked about Jesus Christ becoming a human being for our redemption, for our salvation, he, he says of Christ that though he was rich, and we sing this song, Thou who was rich beyond all measure, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich uh, with the gift of God's grace and mercy and salvation. Scripture tells us that the, the failure to care for these vulnerable members of, of our community is a failure to do justice. And you think, for example, in the New Testament, read the book of James, his warnings against impartiality, showing favoritism to those who are wealthy and dishonoring the poor. 
or when he says that true religion is, is, to, is to care for these vulnerable ones, the widow, the orphan, and that uh, those, those who are, are most vulnerable in those ways. This is why God is so upset. This is part of why he's so upset with Israel in the time of Amos. Because these are his covenant people. And he wants his covenant people to reflect his heart, his values, his uh, righteousness, his justice. And here they are caring not about the things that he cares about, but they are self-absorbed and they are self-interested, and they are uncaring. Now the other thing that Amos points out about them that we, we, we don't want to miss is he's not only concerned, um, if, if you think about what we're describing in terms of sort of the horizontal element, the social, the, the human-to-human element, he's not only concerned with their lack of care for their, their neighbor, but it's, it's made worse because he also sees this huge absence of integrity in their worship. Uh, what, what do I mean by that? Well, at the same time that they're living in luxury and behaving badly in terms of uh, the way they're treating other people, they're, at the same time, they're in many ways a very religious. Uh, he talks about them gathering together for his solemn worship services, having religious banquets, bringing to, uh, different kinds of offerings to God, singing uh, their, their praise songs. And so they, they have a, a religious practice that is full of enthusiasm and, uh, and emotion, but it is lacking in, in fundamental integrity because it's disconnected from God's word and the character uh, that he's calling his people to, to, to embody. And, and it's, it's also, in Amos' day, it's compromised by their participation in uh, the religious beliefs of the neighboring uh, nations and, and you know, mixing, uh, mixing those up with uh, the laws of God. Uh, furthermore, it's external. Right? They, they do these religious practices, but it does not seem to be heartfelt devotion. It's outward display, but it's not the substance of love for God and love for neighbor. And so it's hypocritical. It's, it's marked, for example, as we already said, by this impatience. They want to get back to making more money. And so there's a sense which they are living, um, we might say double lives, they're, they're attending services, they're offering sacrifices, they're singing songs of praise, all the while living lives of disobedience to God. It's a religion of self-worship more than anything. It is idolatry. And that's not true worship. And, and so Amos cries out against this and in the strongest of language, you know, God says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I mean, think about that for a minute. We're, we're gathered here tonight in a, in a religious assembly. We're singing songs of praise to God. And 
I hope in some sense we imagine that that's pleasing to God, but imagine if God were to say, your, your assembly here tonight is disgusting to me. I don't want to hear your songs because your lives lack integrity. You know, I think about that, and it's kind of, well, it's, it's, it's scary to me. It's sobering. You know, the issue is not that God despises the very forms of worship that he has prescribed. I mean, God has, has told them, uh, the nation of Israel, how they are to, to, to worship him. It's not that he despises those, but, but when his people are going through the motions, but their lives lack the substance, that is not pleasing to him. That's just not pleasing to him. Those forms don't bring him honor or pleasure when they're not the expression of an of a, of a authentic, a, a, a pure heart. They're not uh, a pure worship and the expression of a living faith. The external form is, it does not please God when it's offered in the context of a heartless disregard for the welfare of others. You know, God is a God of mercy. How can he take pleasure in people who make a pretense of, of worshiping him while they're living without showing mercy to those who are most needy in their own midst? While they're, they're behaving in ways that dishonor him. And, you know, I this is not my first time to read Amos, but I, I tell you, uh, it just, I read this and I feel the weight of it, just in my own my own heart and how easy it can be you know to sing these familiar songs that I just love and they, they do they lift my spirit but is the character of my life in, in congruity with the things that I'm that I'm singing so what are some ways that we can uh, respond well First of all, I, I, this may be obvious, but prosperity does not always uh, mean that God is blessing you. Uh, it's not always uh, a sign of God's blessing. Many Israelites, and that's why I said wealth is complicated, uh, many Israelites took their wealth and prosperity to be an unmistakable sign of the blessing of God. And so when Amos comes and he announces judgment on the surrounding nations, they're like, yeah, preach it, preach it. Uh, but you know, and even when he announces God's judgment on Judah, yeah, they're, but when he gets to Israel, they're like, what? Us? Right? Uh, there's this uh, delusion that we can fall into. In their case, their wealth and their power was not a sign of God's blessing. They were actually under the judgment of God because of their unfaithfulness with the wealth that he had entrusted them and their lack of compassion with the wealth that he had given them. He's, he's just, he doesn't delight in people who, who amass wealth and have no regard for justice for the needs of others. He doesn't delight in people who amass wealth by cheating, by dishonesty, by corruption, all the while managing, uh, imagining that they're, they're favored of God. Uh, John Piper urges us all to check our own hearts. He says, does Amos refer to anyone today? People who live for comfort, 
who don't grieve over the loss, people who are experts in loving themselves, in, in self-care, but have not thought the first thought about what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. What motivates your getting and spending? Is it a desire to fill your little years with as much comfort as you can, or is it a God-given desire to do as much good for others as you can to the glory of Christ? Amos says to us, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said, hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And he is saying to Israel, if, if my message is convicting you, then repent of your evil ways and bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance. And I say the same to us tonight. One way we can respond is to begin to think about our own lives and whether our own lives have this kind of care for others and visible expressions of that. Are we people of compassion? Are we just so self-absorbed that we, we ignore others, we make excuses? Well, I'm not rich. I'm not exploiting anyone. Greg Blomberg, uh, I, I like his writings on this. He says, a key to evaluating any individual church or nation in terms of its use of material possessions Individually, collectively, institutionally is how well it takes care of the poor and the powerless in its midst. That is its cultural equivalence of the fatherless and the widow and the alien. Who are the poor and the powerless in your sphere, in your circle? What would it mean? What would it look like for you to take a step in their direction? I agree 100% uh, with others who, who say we must begin with the church. And I think this is an area where the church may, uh, in, in many ways, have lost its way in, in our country right now. We need to begin with the church. As Christians, this is our primary community, and this is our primary, our first locus of responsibility. And because we have a unique and, and primary role to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples, our efforts as, as Christians must not lose focus on the gospel. It's not, oh, we pursue justice and we ignore the gospel. No, we must hold fast to and declare the gospel. But true religion will have this integrity that it works itself out in love for neighbor, in compassion, in generosity, and the New Testament hits this theme over and over again. Just one example, we looked at 1 John uh, previously. By this we know love. He laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Phaedon has hid the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. You know, we need to reckon with the fact that God is not impressed 
with our songs of praise if our lives are not an act of worship and service and obedience. The, probably the most famous verse, uh, at least in the United States, in the book of Amos uh, is chapter five, verse uh, 24, uh, made famous by Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, in his great speech. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. God says, I will not listen, but what does matter to me? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. These two terms summarize both who God is and what he desires of us, how we live in the, before him, how we live in relation to others. And I, I just pray for myself, I pray for all of us, that these will increasingly be who we are. Amen. Let me pray. Thank you, Father, for uh, this word from your servant Amos and the ways uh, that it is so timely. Even though he was writing centuries ago, yet your word is timeless truth and it pierces our hearts. I pray, Father, that it would reach into our hearts tonight. We are preoccupied with many things, but I pray that we would not be preoccupied with the concerns uh, that animate us in a way that leads us to ignore or close our hearts to those we are called to love and to serve. Even as our Savior did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And may we follow his example of giving ourselves in loving service to you and to our neighbor and to our brothers and sisters. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.